Welcome to All Sides with Ann Fisher. The idea of a comic book typically conjures thoughts of color-filled pages of muscled superheroes battling supervillains in a war to save the world. These days, the universe of comics and graphic novels is more diverse and nuanced than ever. It is a place best served by perhaps the thoughtful comic store clerk who guides fans to those fantastic worlds of make-believe. We're talking about the comic book business through the lens of the independent comic shops, largely responsible for fostering the still-expanding fan culture. Joining us is co-founder and manager of The Laughing Ogre in Clintonville, Gib Bickle. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Ann. Also, Columbus Dispatch business reporter Dan Garino has written a book on the topic. Uh, It's entitled Comic Shop, The Retail Mavericks Who Gave Us a New Geek Culture. Welcome back. Glad to be here. Dan, when and why did the first comic book shops emerge? One thing I found in in looking at this whole topic is when you talk about the first of something – it's incredibly treacherous territory because it all comes down to definitions of kind of what is a comic shop. But when you look at when you started to see, let's say, a proliferation of comic shops, when there were when this was big enough that there were a few of them, um, you would see this in the late 60s and early 70s um, and would accelerate through the 70s. And kind of the why was that there was – well, there was – there were buyers, first of all. This fan culture had grown up to the point that there were people who would patronize these shops. Just go to a shop just yeah. to do that. And then there, another another element was that this business model had developed that provided products for these these places to, to sell. And it was kind of geared toward their specific needs. And that it, when you say – it's about a business model. That sounds really boring, but it's about a really interesting business model and, it, and that fostered a lot of really interesting businesses. Uh, right. The entrepreneur, Phil, is it Suling? Suling, yeah. Suling is a central character in the story of this business model. Uh, it's, it was a sales model. Mm-hmm. So, uh, when he started, um, so he was a convention organizer uh, in, uh, in New York. He was a high school teacher who also ran a convention in New York. And in 1973, uh, he went to the uh, executives at Marvel Comics, DC Comics, other major publishers, and he said, uh, I want to do a different way of of supplying new comics to specialty stores. Um, so not supplying corner drugstores and a lot of the, the kind of places that typically would stock the stuff. But he, he would sell it to them, and he'd also sell it to them on a non-returnable basis, which is a really important element here, because all the stuff you get at Grocery stores and drugstores, the periodicals are sold returnable. If there's any left over, you return them for a credit. Okay. Um, and by making it non-returnable, that meant that all of these specialty shops would they would keep whatever leftovers there were to sell as back issues to fans. Um, but also, they could get a bigger discount. Um, and from the publisher's perspective, this meant that every single thing you sold to them was a it was done. It was a firm sale. Um, and what that meant was that there there could be this real flowering of new comic shops opening but also new publishers and new people new people kind of getting into this space because this this new model existed to 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 that, that wouldn't have before when you had this much much bigger system of news racks all over the country Gibbickle, did it influence you in your business well it, the comic book market that Dan's talking about had already been established for quite a while when uh-huh. we opened up but so d- we we didn't open up because of that but yeah, I mean, it established the, the I mean, system that we were able to when you decided to open up, though, you knew about that system sure. and mm-hmm. you knew that how to make a business plan around it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, 
the lore has been rever- referred to, the lore about the business is Byzantine. Um, in other words, complicated. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what, why it has that kind of a reputation. Well, it's it, – when you talk about what's – I would say both complicated but then also really difficult. Um, so this is a system that was developed in the early 70s for the very specific needs of publishers at that time, mm-hmm. for the needs of the few retailers that existed at that time. The um, few specialty retailers. Yeah. yeah. And in terms of the structure, a lot of the main elements of it have stayed the same ever since. Um even while while the entire retail landscape has changed all around us. Um, so you've got all of these – you've got now thousands of these specialty shops. And this system helped to make create this fertile ground for them. But it's it, – it, it, we now live in a much more complicated retail world where you can get this stuff at other places. You can, you can get digital comics. You can go to the library. You can um, – there are uh, – these uh, comics in book form are sold at bookstores. So – when you no longer have comic book stores having kind of a monopoly on this mm-hmm. stuff, it, it it creates this it creates this kind of complexity and it creates this difficulty that makes it so that guys like guys like Gibb have a it's a it's not a it's not an easy business to be in. Not that having a small business is ever easy, but this is a particularly difficult one. Um, Gib Bickle, why do you I mean why do you think that this business has grown versus contracted like so many other print mediums have uh, in the computer age? In the internet age, more importantly, uh, there's probably a lot of different factors. I think one of the factors is that people look on the art form; it's a different way of reaching people. It's a, a fairly cheap way of reaching people. Like you can make your own comic book and get it out to the nation in a, a lot cheaper format than you can make your own film. Hmm. Try to get your own film distributed or get picked up by a, a major prose publisher. You know, so you can actually create your own comic book and get people around the country reading it. It's it's a unique voice because you're telling the story with words, but you've also got the pictures. It's almost like a frozen movie. The comics are literally storyboards. That's why they they take the movies so well. So it's a unique way of telling a story, and it's a it's a great way of getting it out there. What is it about that people like about going to a store and looking at it versus just going online and looking at stuff that, you know, people buy sheets online. They're going to sleep with those, sure. but they'll buy those online and a book. They'd rather be holding a comic book in their hands. Yeah, I mean, I think so. A lot of people do. But I think it's it's not only just having the book, but when you come into a store – and you're like, hey, I like this. What else is like that? I mean, you can go to some of the big online retailers and they will say, hey, people that bought this bought that. But that doesn't tell – you don't know why that you liked it. I liked it because it's got a you know a strong female protagonist. Oh, if you like her, then then you got to read this. You got to read that. Mm-hmm. And you've, you've got – you're talking to people that have read you know thousands of books and they can tell you exactly what you're going to like next. Dan Garino, what is the market for what we think of as the the traditional comic book? Batman, Spider-Man, you know, for me it was Baby Huey and Richie Rich uh, <laughs> when I was a kid. Well, it's – there are – the market is different. There's kind of like this almost this stereotypical market, which is superhero comics. Mm-hmm. But that market is uh, flat and in some places shrinking. Huh, okay. So one of the most interesting things I found is that – the audience for comics is growing 
it's and in certain segments growing like crazy. And what's happening is you're seeing this diversification of the audience. You're seeing um, that kind of stereotypical superhero comic that has a generally male audience, a generally you know older male audience. Um, the ones who they were reading, they've been yeah, reading for forty years. Yep, yeah. and and is really kind of catered toward that group. Is trying to you know sell a whole bunch of titles uh, a, a month to that to that group. But where the real growth is happening is comics aimed at elementary school kids, comics aimed oh, okay. at middle grade readers. Um, th- there are there are books selling millions of copies, um, and if you're looking purely through the lens of kind of mainstream comics, the kind that they make blockbuster movies from. It's you see a market that's in kind of in trouble, but if you take a few steps back, um, there it's just it's just kind of how wide do you want to look? Uh, And for comic shops, what's really interesting is this core audience that they've had for a long time, um, that a lot of shops have had for a long time, is kind of flat, is in some places shrinking. So the way that you survive and the way that you thrive is you are a place that kids want to shop, that women want to shop, that. you know, where, where you you tap into that increasingly diverse audience. Yeah, I mean, when I've been in comic book shops, they're they're very friendly, warm places. Um, what do you do, uh, Gib, to make it to to to, to diversify your clientele? Uh, well, we've got the the all ages section right inside the door, and that's yeah. specifically, you know, these are all things that that families can be comfortable with their kids reading, and it is right inside the door, and it. You know, we try to get people in there right off the bat. But also, I mean, we've got a diverse staff. A lot of ladies come in and they'd like to talk to another lady about the books that they're mm-hmm. looking for. Um, we try to carry as wide a variety of material as possible. Well, let's talk about what are kids interested in these days? They're not in superheroes aren't as much of a thing for them. Uh, they they are, but not as they're not as big a part of the pie as they were at one time. What are they looking at? You know, you've got stuff like, well, I mean, in a lot of ways, that revolution among kids all ages was with Bone. Oh. You know, Jeff Smith's Bone. Scholastic picked that up and started publishing that. And that, in a lot of ways, I think that's the leader that that made them say, wow, we can make money on graphic novels. Graphic novels. Raina Telgemeier, Uh huh. She does the Babysitter's Club and she's got her own stuff. Those things are among young girls are just amazing. She was a guest at CXC two years ago, and that I mean they they filled the auditorium that where she was talking, and every single one of those kids in that room wanted to do their own graphic novel. She's like, "How many of you want to do comics when you grow up?" And like every hand shot up. So but they're thinking graphic novel. They're, we call them comics, but it's real different from like you know what I grew up with and what's available out there now. Yeah, the Harveys, Baby Huey, and Hot Stuff, and everything. those <laughs> were those were comic books. Archie and right, yeah. and, and in a lot of ways, we kind of refer to them as floppies. I, some people think that's a derogatory term. I do not because they are a little pamphlet. You yeah. know, they're comics. I still love them. I read them every week. But Scholastic and Bone and kids are used to reading those small books. They're graphic novels. I guess Captain Underpants could fall fall into that category. Mm-hmm. He does. Yeah. Anything with with uh, panels. Well, the thing about you look at like like Raina Telgemeier, so uh, CXC, uh, which Gib was referring to, is Cartoon Crossroads Columbus, which is a great comic show in Columbus in September and, uh, or October each year, um, and it's it's crazy how popular 
some of these artists are. And you know, you look at just a, a someone my age, you you're just like at that time I was like, oh, I didn't realize this was such a big deal. And then you see, it's like I mean, it's like I'm trying to think of some sort of it's like Taylor Swift or somebody is there. You know, it's yeah. like these passionate fans, you know, with stacks of books that they want signed. And um, it's something that I think an old an older comics audience has been slow to grasp that there that this this thing that they like is actually much much bigger than they than they realize and that there is this younger audience and the whole key for the business then is making sure that those people keep reading you know that because you've got this great opportunity um it's there were several generations in there that did not necessarily read comics as kids right making sure they keep reading and make sure making sure those authors and those artists keep writing and drawing right right we're talking about the comic shops business and comic books in general. If you have a question or comment, you can give us a call, 614-292-8513, or email us at allsides at WOSU.org, or check out the All Sides with Ann Fisher Facebook page. Post your question or comment there. With me in the studio, Gib Bickle. He's manager of The Laughing Ogre, and also Dan Garino, author of Comic Shop, The Retail Mavericks Who Gave Us a New Geek Culture. This is All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Ann Fisher. We're talking about the comic book business and the role of independent comic shops. Still with us is the co-founder and manager of The Laughing Ogre, Gib Bickle. Also business reporter for the Columbus Dispatch, Dan Garino. His new book is entitled Comic Shop, The Retail Mavericks Who Gave Us a New Geek Culture. And joining us now by phone is the associate publisher of Fanographics Books, the publisher of the works of Robert Crumb, Daniel, is it Close, and Chris Ware, to name a few, Eric Reynolds. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much. Uh, Fanographics Books is credited for helping change the view of comic books to one of a legitimate form of art and literature. And it's not just comic books we're talking about now. It's graphic novels, right? Well, that's true, although as I'm constantly explaining to my nine-year-old daughter, I'm not sure there's much of a distinction other than one has a spine and one doesn't. (laughs) Anymore, right? Right, but what has been the role of independent shops when it comes to changing that image? <clears throat> well, it's a complicated one, to be honest. The mm-hmm. the direct market was uh, the, of of stores, of which Gib is one. You know, was born out of an industry um, that was primarily driven by Marvel and DC, and a lot of the sort of infrastructure surrounding it sort of caters to their kind of publishing habits. Um, so for Fanographics, which has always kind of tried to kind of break out of the traditional genres that comics trade in, um, we've always had kind of a bit of a contentious relationship with the direct market. There's always been a few hundred really dedicated retailers like Gibb who I think strived really hard to showcase the, the diversity of the market um, and of the medium. But that's not always been true of, you know, the entire retail base. And I think a lot of that's borne out by the fact that you now have this new generation of younger readers who are growing up with things like Raina Telgemeier, but didn't 
engage those works or even or discover those works within the context of the comic book store market. They're hmm. finding it elsewhere. Hmm. Uh, so what is the breakdown, Dan Garino, uh, when we're talking about something like uh, The Laughing Ogre, you know, in shops like that? How many of them are like that out there? That 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 almost completely some kind of mainstream Marvel and DC material, you mean? I, yeah. I, it's I, I would certainly the majority. Um, it's it's it seems like throughout the history of comic shops, there has always been this core of like like Eric says, maybe about two hundred stores that stock this really broad array of stuff, uh, and those are clustered in big cities and college towns for the most part, okay. um, with some yeah. notable exceptions. And then you've got this larger number that are just you know that are catering to that core that older core audience, traditional, yeah. Um, and that's where you're seeing a lot of the attrition now, where you're seeing that's more likely to see those kind of stores closing, more likely to see those kind of stores having a tough time um, because that's an audience that's not that's not growing. What what kind of role do movies like American Splendor play in, in the whole realm of, of the the image of comic shops, Eric Reynolds? Well, that's an interesting question because in the year 2000, we had a movie produced um, based on the graphic novel Ghost World by Daniel Klaus. Uh, that was really the first kind of indie or alternative work that got adapted um, on that kind of a scale. Mm-hmm. It was a movie starring Steve Buscemi and Thora Birch. And um, it did fairly well for, you know, for a very small indie film of its type. And it was nominated for an Academy Award. Daniel Klaus was nominated for writing the screenplay. Um, and that summer, we sold an, in, an insane amount of Ghost World books. I mean, the, the, the print run of Ghost World probably quintupled in the, in the um, mm. course of the summer. So it had a huge effect. But then just about a year later, you had a, a movie called Spider-Man come out. By Sam Raimi, and that was really the open the floodgates of you know what of the climate we live in now in terms of Hollywood tentpole films. And so, you know, frankly, I think the movies that have come out the last few years, American Splendor was several years ago at this point, but yeah. you had things like Diary of a Teenage Girl, mm. um, which was a, a very critically acclaimed film, but I but I don't get the sense that it moved the needle, and I worry that you know in some ways those works have just gotten kind of dwarfed by the the sea of superhero films that have flooded the marketplace over the last I don't know however many years 10 years so American Splendor didn't move the needle or it was it doesn't really count anymore because it was so old no I'm sure it I'm sure it did at the time I'm not so sure it's had a lasting you okay. know, kind of perennial effect it, one thing about American Splendor though um Gibickle, is that it kind of opened the doors of the comic shop and the independent comic shop and definitely portrayed people who work there as kind of geeky, nerdy. That That's pretty typical. There's a, a serialized comedy on TV that portrays us as being really, really misogynist. Which and one is that? I think it's called Big Bang Theory. Oh. <laughs> okay. No, I, I – literally, I saw – this woman was sitting in her car for 10 minutes and I thought maybe she was going to one of the other stores. She finally came in and we started talking about what she was looking for. And she's like, well, this isn't anything like what I thought it was going to be. And I knew immediately, I'm like, you watch big bang theory, don't you? And she's like, yeah, I, I was afraid. She sat in her car. She really sat in her car for 10 minutes, afraid to come in the store. Wow. Well, this is a recurring theme. Yeah. It's like this, this kind of, 
Well, this kind of stereotypical notion of what these stores are like and not helped at all by the fact that a lot of the stores are like that. Um, Well, I was going to say that as well. I don't think that was necessarily as unfair a kind of stereotype, you know, 20 years ago as it is now. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, Dan Garino. Well, and and one of the things that I – that, that made me really interested in in these businesses um, is the ones that are good are so good. You know, and I wanted to – in this book, there's um, there's brief profiles of 40 different stores. Um, and these are stores – these are the kind of stores that you would that, – that would serve diverse audiences that do a really, really good – Good job at, at what at what they do, and there it's like if if all stores were kind of like those stores, this would be a much more um, it'd be a it'd be a healthier market, and I think it's a somewhat huh. healthy market anyway. But um, if you you know going to going to Laughing Ogre Gibbs store or going to just the 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 ten or so best stores around, you just you you walk in and you just kind of. You kind of feel good about the world. It's 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 uh, just this, the things that are available and the communities that develop around those places are just are, are are incredible. We've talked about movies and the influence of movies. What about video games, um, uh, Eric Reynolds? <laughs> well, I you know I don't know. I mean, video games don't really relate to the types of work that we publish, which is a little more adult and and serious and kind of literary minded. So. Yeah. You know, so we can't really exploit those connections the way that a lot of licensed properties produced by the bigger corporate publishers can. So it does, it, it's not really a part of my world at all. Gib Bickle? You know, I mean, they do make minor, you know, splashes. Mm-hmm. You'll have Overwatch and they'll put an Overwatch comic out. And and it it doesn't bring a whole lot of new people in. Okay. Um, the The publishers, for the most part, don't have a handle on how to get people in to the stores for something like that. If you're putting out an Overwatch comic, they don't really know how to how to get people to come into a comic store. So, but but you know, Eric Reynolds, does somebody have to go to a comic store to to get a lot of what you produce, uh what you publish? Well, no, actually. Um I mean, 20 years ago, 99 95% of our business was through comic book stores. Over the last 16, 17 years, the, the the business has evolved in the book trade. The general book trade has embraced graphic novels a lot more. Right. Um, so we're actually, you know, any given book splits a little bit differently, but uh, we probably sell about 40% of our overall uh, volume through comic book stores. The rest is through, you know, general trade bookstores, independent bookstores, um, and other, you know, kind of niche markets here and there. But it, but the comic book market is still incredibly important, and and you know, it, and personally, it's a it's a meaningful place to me, and I want to see it continue to thrive. And um, but it, it 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 is an odd beast. You're listening to All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News. We're talking about the comic books business and the independent shops that sell them. What's your favorite shop in Columbus, listeners? What do you where do you go to get your comic books, to get your graphic novels? Give us a call, 614-292-8513, or you can email us at allsides at WOSU.org or check out the All Sides Facebook page and post your question or your comment there. Uh my guests, you're here just heard from Eric Reynolds. He's associate publisher of Fanographic Books. 
and also Gib Bickle, manager, uh, co-founder and manager of The Laughing Ogre, and Dan Garino. He's author of a new book. It's entitled Comic Shop, The Retail Mavericks Who Gave Us a New Geek Culture. Dan Garino, what did inspire you to, to do? Are you a can should I assume you're a comic books lover yourself? I am, yeah. And, um, well, it's funny. A, a, a lot of the stuff that Eric's company published were just uh, were incredibly important to me uh, growing up, and in my uh, um, when when I was in college, and well, even in, still to today. Um, and and I've been a longtime customer of uh, at, at Gibbs Store. Uh, I think that the idea from this came from conversations with Gibb actually about how this kind of business came to be and the kind of the challenges facing this kind of business today. Uh, and uh, especially some of the people who helped to create this model in the in the 70s uh, and in the 80s that are getting up there in years. Um, and I really wanted to talk to them and um, just get some of the stuff on the record. How are they are those shops going to survive? Some of them, well, a lot of or the guys are they who so wrapped up in the so um, the owners and the operators. A lot of those kind of the pioneers, of the business are not are not working as day to day retailers anymore. There are a couple, but for the most part, these are these are guys who are retired or who are moved on to other businesses. Um, so, uh, as far as stores that have been around for decades, can they survive? The ones that base the, the thing that will determine whether or not you survive. Uh, just in this business or any business is just are you are you changing to address the changing needs of of the customer base and in this case, I think that that change is that your customer base the people interested in this stuff is becoming a lot more diverse um, and it's um so yeah the, those who have been doing it for a long time some have changed and evolved really effectively and still have great places to to um and there are lots of other ones that that kind of you feel like you're stepping into 1985. Eric Reynolds, how <laughs> have you addressed that changing um demographic? Well, I'm not sure so sure we've addressed it so much as the <laughs> the demographic has kind of come around to to us. Okay. Um I mean I, I I agree with everything Dan just said and um for us, we were struggling for a long time to just try to reach the demographic that we were trying to hit because we weren't really catering to the normal kind of Wednesday, floppy Marvel and DC superhero crowd. So, so we're always trying to get out into a little different regions of the of the country because, like Dan was saying, primarily the the best comic stores that were carrying our books were located in um, metropolitan markets or college stores. And for for decades, you know, you had these huge swaths of country in between where, before the internet, it was, uh, you know, you have you'd be hard pressed to to find a lot of this stuff without buying it, you know, through a mail order company or something like that. And um, luckily, you know, the, the 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 playing field has leveled out quite a bit between mostly just libraries and independent bookstores, sort of embracing the medium um, and the art form, and and. You know the 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 work kind of finds its uh, finds its audience both at a retail level and a, at a consumer level. Um, so yeah, I don't, I'm not quite sure that completely addresses your question. Mm. But no, I mean it's it's an interesting <clears throat> aspect of it though that the people are coming around. It's not necessarily that anyone's going out to cater to to attract them. Well, it's I? true. I mean, I, I you know, 20 years ago, I had to explain what I did 
in relation to Garfield or Spider-Man. Okay. <laughs> you know, that every 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 bit of contextualization started with one of those two reference points. Um and that's just not the case anymore. I mean, as as you folks were talking before I even joined you, um, you know, there is this new mainstream of comic book readers uh that that don't come from this kind of narrow American comic book industry uh focus. They've they've you know embraced manga and uh-huh. and artists have been influenced by manga. I, I think Raina Telgemeier, she she's as influenced by by other cultures' comics as American culture. Manga, uh, yeah. Yeah. We haven't and, brought that um, up yet, yeah. And I think that's you know, that's been really huge. It's really just completely changed the demographic of who's reading comic books in America in a very healthy way because prior to ten years ago the the demographic of comics was basically getting just smaller and older. Which means um, dying. Right. And yeah. I don't think that's the I don't think that's the case anymore and that's a great thing and that bodes well for all of us as publishers and retailers and fans. What about manga, um, Gib? Is it big for you? Yeah, I mean it, it's big everywhere. Been solid for a long time. Yeah, right. And it, it, again, like Dan says, there are certain stores that, hey, that's different, but it's great, you know. And when we opened the store, we did not. I, you know, Spider Man was the first book I ever bought, but Ghost World came out of a book called Eight Ball, and it's Eight Ball has been one of my favorite books since it was started being published. It's black and white. It's drama. It doesn't preclude you from liking anything else. But for the most part, like Eric's trying to get really good drama into stores, and they a lot of stores just really just want the four-color superhero books. So when we opened, it was all about good stories. I don't care who publishes. I don't right. care what color they are. You know, And so manga, a good manga story is just like a good Spider-Man story. If it's good, it's good. We never preclude anything. Where are where are the authors and the artists coming from, Eric Reynolds? If you're an author, you're not necessarily the artist, right? Or or are you typically? Where are they coming from? In in our, in our world, you're typically both. Okay, um, and that's not true for the entire industry or for the art form. But for us, I'd say ninety percent of our books are written and drawn by the same person. It's kind of the the auteur theory of comics that you know a, a, a true true artistic vision is more likely to come from one you know, one person than yeah. some sort of collaborative effort. There's plenty of exceptions. Sure, to, sure. You know, to, to the rule. But but as to where they're coming, they're coming from all over the place anymore. You know, even 8-Ball by Daniel Klaus, which Gib just mentioned, um, Daniel Klaus, you know, he came from the kind of American comic book tradition, even though he personally took it in a much different, more underground, um, you know, more literary direction. But you can still see the antecedents. You know, he 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 loved Mad Magazine and and the great EC Comics illustrators like Wally Wood and people like Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby and um, and now you're seeing less of a, a <clears throat> direct lineage between today's cartoonists and the past, um, and that's because I think they're the younger artists of today, whether mainstream or or more uh, literary or, or alternative artists are just—they're just drawing from so many more different influences and, and and things. You know, whether it's more, whether it's even comics, or maybe it is video games, or mm-hmm. maybe it is anim- animation, or you know, you have a, a there's been a pretty robust industry of adult uh, 
or kind of edgy animation that I think has influenced a lot of the culture today, for better or for worse. Are they coming from um, art schools or or, or oh, creative writing yeah. programs? I'm wondering what the kind of the... Yeah, all of the above. Okay. Um, you know, I'm 46, and when I was going to college, your, your only really option if you wanted to do comics was to to major in illustration, which was really kind of a square peg in a round hole kind of thing. But mm-hmm. now, you know, there are now there are bona fide comics curriculums around the country and there are comic schools where you can actually learn the trade of cartooning. Um, there are art schools that, that just sort of accept comics and embrace comics within the broader, you know, their broader art curriculum. Um, a lot of people are self-taught. Uh, it, it runs the gamut. And, and, but, and again, that's a, I think a healthy, more recent development, you know, you didn't have those kind of diversity of, 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 uh, people and places that, that cartoonists were coming from, uh, 20 years ago. Eric Reynolds, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Eric Reynolds is an associate publisher at Fantagraphics Books. Uh, we'll continue our conversation. Like to hear from listeners. What's your favorite comic store in Columbus or where do you go to get your best comics? 614-292-8513 or email us at allsides at WOSU.org. We'll be right back. This is All Sides with Sam Fisher on 89.7 NPR News. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Ann Fisher. Historically, many comic shops have had a man cave feel to them, in part because publishers tended to cater to male tastes. But in recent years, comics have gotten more diverse with more female characters and heroes of color. And the diversity of those working behind the counter at comic shops has changed as well. We're talking about the comic book business and the role of independent comic shops. Still with us, co-founder and manager of The Laughing Ogre, Gib Bickle. Also business reporter for the Columbus Dispatch, Dan Garino. His new book is entitled Comic Shop, The Retail Mavericks Who Gave Us a New Geek Culture. Joining us now is the co-owner of 8th Dimension Comics and Games in Houston, Texas, Annie Bullock. Annie is also the social media administrator for the Valkyries, a worldwide organization for women working in comic book retail. Welcome to the show, Annie. Hi, thank you for having me. Wow, a worldwide organization for women working in comic book retail. What a niche. I mean, how did it come about? Uh, Well, a few years ago, um, Kate Left, who uh, is now um, uh, a a comic writer uh, and uh, artist herself, um, she was working in a comic shop in Canada where she lived. And uh, I think at the time she had just begun, like, she was doing a web comic, but she was working in a shop and she felt a little alone uh, as a woman sometimes. That, you know, women working in comic shops sometimes encounter things that their male counterparts don't, uh, you know, just the way that they're treated sometimes by customers or. Mm-hmm. Just a general vibe that can happen sometimes. So she put out the call on Twitter and just said, gosh, there, there have to be other women working in shops. And she was in Halifax, uh, I think. So fairly remote, didn't know a lot of other people. And sure enough, there were other women in comics saying, hey, I'm here. And so it just started with a little group, uh, people who you know, just wanted to get together and, and talk about their shared experiences and uh, you know, not even necessarily to just complain uh, yeah, about things, uh, which... 
uh, people often assume, but just to, to, to support each other. And it grew quickly. It started with about a dozen people who responded to the first call on Twitter, and uh, it snowballed. I think we, I think I believe I was number 147 uh, of the members. Uh, it was less than a year later, and now we have over 600 members in uh, shops all around the world. We have, uh, we have people in Australia, across Europe, um, I think in Japan, uh, kind of all over the place. So. Uh, Gib Bickle, you have a couple Valkyries working in your shop, right? Two for um, sure. I do. Two for sure. Oh, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. Okay. <laughs> yeah, two. Two. I know that participate. One of our our uh, employees that left was a Valkyrie, and the third one, I don't know if if she is or not. What did you think of that when the, when the when the organization formed? Oh, I, I love it. <laughs> I mean, we've had comic shop owners that have had you know the same kind of groups where we just. Man, how do you deal with this? You know, just talking a lot of times, just talking about what all the things you're dealing with on right. a daily basis. Just kind of good to know that other people out there are doing it and suffering the same thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, Annie, according to a recent industry survey, comic book and graphic novels are up six percent in the past year, and women account for thirty-seven percent of those sales. I know what it tells me. It means there's room to grow, right? There is, and I know that a lot of the um, a, a lot of women are buying their comics from places other than comic shops. They're going, they're going online. They're going to big uh, you know, chain bookstores. Sometimes uh, young women, girls, are one of the biggest demographics for comics, hands down. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of them are not buying in shops like ours because there has been, well, I think for a lot of reasons. But I believe one of them is because there is. A, a stigma and expectation sometimes that if you go into a shop like this, you won't be treated well, that you'll be treated like a second-class citizen. And that definitely happened to me the first time I went into a comic shop. What happened? Uh, uh, I walked in. They ignored me for a minute and then asked me if I was looking for something for my boyfriend. And I was there to buy comics for myself. <laughs> and you know, I was just getting into comics and had never uh, really been in a shop like that before. And And... Yeah, because I went in there by myself. They assumed I was lost. Um, that shop isn't in business anymore. But <laughs> but this is also close to twenty years ago now. Right. Um, but but that that was so off putting to be to walk into some place and assume have they have the people assume you didn't belong there. Huh. Um, and that that happens. That still happens uh, to people. We hear about it all the time. Um, I, yeah, I run the Valkyrie social media. Yeah. Pardon me. The, the social media and people will contact us on Twitter and say, "Hey, do you know of a shop in X city that won't treat me like some kind of an alien? Or uh, <laughs> if, if if I go in there, I just want to go in and buy some comic books." So they're asking I, for I referrals. To... This is a really yeah. this is a really f- uh, functional thing on the ground is making a difference to consumers. Uh, we we certainly try. That <laughs> um, it's. It, it, it's an ongoing problem. I think it is definitely better in some places. There are definitely shops that make an effort, you know, like ours. That, I mean, it was part. It was literally written into our business plan that we were a, a woman-friendly and everybody-friendly shop. You, you, know, you can, you know, come in here. You'll be treated well. You don't have to know a bunch about comics. There's not a gatekeeper who's going to ask you a bunch of trivia questions <laughs> to find out if you're allowed to buy comics. I guess, but that happens a lot. Really, uh, at, at different places, and some of the 
depictions that people see just in popular culture of comic shops, the two most common ones that people know are the one from The Simpsons, which is a terrible store, but also one that you could visit in real life, um, and then the one on The Big Bang Theory, which is maybe somehow worse. And so those aren't the norm. It's not that, the, well, they exist, but I, I wouldn't say that it's the norm, and there are certainly places that aren't that way. Um, so it's nice, but also a little sad when people come into our shop and it's well, it's, there's natural light and it's clean and organized and women work here. Uh, And well, that was, that wasn't always the case. It was a lot of basements, uh, a lot of basement type things, no question, because low rent, but, uh, I'm more familiar, you know, the one that I always think about depicted in the media is the funky Winkerbane, um, Comic shop, you know. Uh, I don't know if that's just because it's Ohio or what. Let's take some calls real quick. Uh, Zach and Columbus, you're on the air. Hi, Zach. Hi, how you doing? Good. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah, so I was uh, just calling in to kind of comment on uh, Laughing Ogre probably being the most reliable comic shop in the city. Uh, it's been one of those things that uh, kind of been passed down in my family, like where my dad used to bring me there as a kid. I I now go as an adult. Uh-huh. And, the vibe of that place, I, I always say, like, if, if that, like, the smell of that place could be turned into a candle, then I would totally buy it because there's this that's awesome <laughs> smell of, like, ink, and the people who work there are super knowledgeable, and, and uh, just like your other guest was mentioning, it's, it's a similar vibe where there's a lot of female associates who not only work there and are super knowledgeable, but a lot of them are also uh, comic book writers themselves, and they have independent press on the shelves there. So you know when you're going there, it's not just somebody who's, you know, just kind of an enthusiast, but also somebody who is a part of that world, which I totally love. Does that matter to you, this more diversifying audience and that, that some shops are more welcoming than others? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, comic books as an art, you know, art being this thing that is supposed to be, uh, you know, for everybody, hmm. it, it being so diverse does give you something for, for any audience that you're looking for. You walk into Laughing Ogre and there's, there is manga, but there are those more independent books and there's the larger press as well. And I think the representation of as many like niches as possible is absolutely wonderful. Everyone should have something to read. Okay, Zach, thanks a lot for your call. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. So it's not, I mean, Zach's saying these kind of things matter to him as well. Dan Garino, it's, you know... It's not just about individuals. Mm-hmm. It's about whole families. It is. And it's also, uh, we, we're talking about Laughing Ogre in part because um, because uh, Gibbs here. Yeah. There's a bunch of really good comic shops in Columbus. Um, and there are two featured in the book. But there's there's the other one is Packrat Comics in Hilliard, um, which is a great store. Um, it, but, um, yeah, it's, um, it's funny. Yes, it, Zach was not paid to make that call as far as I know. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, it's logical that, yeah. Yeah, no, it's but that's the most familiar one to most people. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. How did you come up with Laughing Ogre? My uh, co-founder Darren Garino made the the no name. Relation? Of, no relation. Okay, Different yeah, spelling. Yeah, yeah. It's, okay. yeah. No. Well, the first time I saw Dan's byline in the Dispatch, I'm like Dan Garino, Darren Guarino. Oh, like, okay. Holy okay. Cow. <laughs> but Darren made it up. We used to role play together, and it was a inn that our characters hung out. So we're looking for something very distinctive for a name that people would remember, but also had a character. So we could put the character in ads and stuff. And, yeah, it's just a natural. We were also going to have games and comics before we opened. Games, but, another big thing. We just did a show on that a yeah. few weeks ago. Yeah. So we opened in front of a place called The Soldier that sold games. So we specialized in the comics ang- angle 
in the same building, two different products. And so. Yeah. Uh, Annie Bullock, uh, what do you make of this, of the girls uh, and the girl, and I mean girls literally, you know, younger, younger girls, uh, young women and the increase in popularity in that demographic? Where is it coming from? Well, uh, one of the uh, the biggest uh, movers and shakers in that is the uh, uh, writer uh, Raina Telgemeier, right. who yeah. writes. Uh, she's done a whole slew of books that go through Scholastic, uh, which goes into the book fairs and schools, and so they're in school libraries and everywhere, so there's ready access to it, and they're pretty great. Um, and so okay, now they... I'm getting the Scholastic references because of the book the book mm-hmm. fairs. That that's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. Okay. Give them in, young. They see this in the book fair. Here's some great stories. Here's stories about girls, things that are you know that, that are relatable to everyone, but something where it's not. Well, I mean, this is a story about a boy, but I guess I kind of I can relate to it too. Like you don't you don't have to just relate to it. You that's that's you, uh, which is nice to see and something that didn't always happen when I was younger for sure, or yeah. it was something that was you know kind of niche and wasn't in comics. I didn't get into comics until I was an adult. I loved um, comics when I was a kid. I want, I will always wanted, if I ever had a girl, I wanted to name her Veronica. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Yeah. But that's about it. I mean, there weren't a lot of a lot of otherwise uh, comics. Let's uh, hear from David right. in Mount Sterling. Hi, David. Hello. Uh, I want to make a comment. I'm, I'm 60 years old, and I used to go to the corner drugstore to get my comic books, and yep. always was a big Captain America fan, and and I even own some of the old timely comics, the Captain America. And I want to ask your guests how they feel, how they kept changing the characters like Captain America and Batman over the years, and to keep them, you know, lively with the times. And uh, and the comic book shop I go to a lot of times is in Yellow Springs, Ohio. And I go down there and get my comic books. And and like I said, I still read them at sixty years old. And sure. and I graduated from Miami University and. I just find them relaxing and refreshing to read, and and I enjoy the graphic novels. And uh, I will hang up and listen to their answers. All right, thank you. thanks, David. Uh, what do you think about how they change things to keep up with the times? Well, I mean, yeah, they're always reaching out for the new audience, so they're they'll be like, hey, you know, let's we'll make Captain America this, we'll make Batman that. But they, if you wait long enough, they always return to the tried and true. Hmm. Yeah, uh, Annie Bullock. Uh, that that's really true. I mean, when you're talking about something like Batman, that's there's you have over 75 years of Batman stories, so you're gonna get a little bit of well, may, maybe Batman's dead for a while, and then somebody else is Batman, and then you know he'll be back, it'll be fine. It's, nobody stays dead in comics. Uh, no, it doesn't matter if you saw a body, no matter what happens, like they'll be back. Um, and they also kind of perpetually keep those main characters around the same age. So yeah. Bruce Wayne is always 35-ish, no matter yeah. what else has happened in his life, no matter how many Robins he's had, uh, you know, that, that sort of stays there. So you sort of have that the hand wave in comics where you go, right, 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 okay, but there's this. Um, some of it is, is more complicated when you have um, sort of legacy characters where there's the, the title, but there's been multiple characters who uh, were that... You know, we're, we're in that role. Like, there's been several people, uh, you know, who Captain America or um, uh, it's, some of them are it's more built into it than others. Like, um, well, the Flash now, there's yeah. been a whole bunch of Flashes. And, 
so I think people are kind of used to it. It can get confusing, especially for new readers. Okay. Um, and I think that's that's maybe the biggest problem is for new readers. It's so daunting to come in and go, okay, what now? And that's, <laughs> and that's what we're here for. We do well, a lot I mean, of anyone explaining. who watches soap operas know people die and they come back to life all the time. And that's um, exactly the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, we have an email from Lassiter who writes, I was wondering what local stores are doing, if anything at all, to attract or reach out to readers of color in our area to foster interest in the hobby. Any thoughts about that, Dan Greeno? Um, maybe um, that would probably be something good to speak to more than me. Is, yep. is, it, is it an untapped market? Um, it it's possible. I mean, anytime small business, when you're talking about reaching out, how do you how do you spend money? And, yeah. And with comic books, it's it's not like, hey, we have the best you know dry cleaning in town. So we have to convince people, hey, there's something here that you want to read, and then come to us. So it it's really tough to and it, and to think about trying to focus on a uh, a, a, a certain demographic. demographic. Yeah. Our our biggest thing is is just like you know we like every kind of story. We like every kind of customer. It does not matter at all. Gib Bickle, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Thank you. It's Gib Bickle. He's a co-founder and manager of The Laughing Ogre. Annie Bullock, thanks to you as well. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me on. Annie Bullock is co-owner of 8th Dimension Dimension Comics and Games in Houston and social media administrator for The Valkyries, a worldwide organization for women working in comic book retail. And Dan Garino, author of Comic Shop, The Retail Mavericks, who gave us a new geek culture. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks to the Allside staff. Michael DeBonis is our producer, assistant producer, Shia Lanat. Allside's interns, Kyle McKinnon, Courtney Gilbert, Dan Posniak, and Martin Coleman, with video production by Rich Blue and Amber Blue. Thanks again for listening. This is All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News.